He ruled England for 38 years. And during the course of this podcast, I've tried to explore Henry VIII in greater detail, hoping to shed much-needed light on the six women who were his wives. He died at the age of 56, and although I'm sure many were happy his life and reign had come to an end, he left behind a country facing many challenges, including ongoing religious reformation, a struggling economy, and a diminished presence on the world stage. Henry's lifelong obsession with the Tudor lineage and his desperate pursuit of a male heir didn't quite pay off the way he wanted it to. Despite all of his best efforts, what he left behind was a political hornet's nest, and it would take many years before England would be able to right herself. Hi, my name is Candy Thomas, and this is The Surreal Housewives of Hampton Court. This is Episode 9, The Aftermath. Warning, this episode contains adult language and descriptions of violent acts. Please proceed with caution. I've repeatedly used a few sources to help with the historical accuracy of this podcast. Among them, The Six Wives of Henry VIII by Alison Weir, The Tudor Chronicles by Susan Duran, and Kings and Queens by Brenda Ralph Lewis. For this short conclusion, I pulled a couple extra tidbits from the book The Children of Henry VIII by Alison Weir. My God, she's so good. And an audiobook named Rivals, Frenemies Who Changed the World by Scott McCormick, which I stumbled upon entirely by accident, but luckily one of the chapters coincided with parts of the story. We've spent weeks together, you and I, discussing this horrible tyrant of a man, and the six women who came in and out of his life, each helping, in their own way, to determine the pace and direction that his reign would inevitably take. Judging from the details I've shared with you, I'm sure it's easy to see how he could be a cruel monster of a man, and that people were probably very relieved to see him dead. He made a habit of turning on those who often served him most loyally, and it's hard to forget that he doled out death penalties to many innocent people. But all these years later, despite having some pretty strong evidence of all of his wrongdoing, there are people who would still support him. Some historians give a much more fair and balanced accounting of his reign. And there is a possibility that I just haven't tried hard enough to compartmentalize it. Maybe accepting that he was an abusive bastard who also did some good things for his people, well, I guess both those things can be true. It's like me saying that Thomas Jefferson was a great American, a brilliant founding father, our nation's third president, and the main author of the Declaration of Independence. But he was also a vile pig of a man who repeatedly raped and impregnated a young slave girl, one of 600 slaves he owned throughout his lifetime. So I guess what I'm saying is that sometimes we must take the good with the bad. In the book, The Tudor Chronicles, the author recapped Henry's reign as follows, and I'm reading this directly from the book. Henry VIII's reign began well. He won great praise for reversing many of his father's policies, for executing the deeply unpopular officials Dudley and Empson, 
and for reopening the traditional war against France. Our king is not after gold or gems or precious metals, wrote Lord Mountjoy to Erasmus, but virtue and glory and immortality. Henry's early successes against Scotland and France seemed to fulfill these expectations. Once again, England seemed a military power to be reckoned with. During the long periods of peace, Henry's magnificence, as displayed in his tournaments, summit meetings, and the furnishings of his 55 royal palaces made him seem the equal of the preeminent rulers in Europe. Increasingly, however, England could not bear the cost of Henry's expenditure. For a short time, the sales of monastic lands and the melting down of church plate helped to fill the gap in financing his conspicuous consumption and his later wars. During the mid-1540s, however, Henry had to resort to financial expedients, such as high taxation, foreign loans, and the debasement of the currency, which seriously harmed the economy of England, not least by exacerbating the existing inflationary trend. The trophy that was the City of Bologna was an extravagant white elephant of no strategic value and too expensive to defend. Ministers privately discussed its return even during Henry's lifetime. Furthermore, Henry's rule became increasingly brutal and tyrannical. His anxiety about succession led to many deaths, but his determination to impose the royal supremacy over the church, while also retaining traditional beliefs, resulted in still more. Nonetheless, there was no reign of terror under Henry. Those executed for political or religious offenses ran into the hundreds rather than the thousands. While a number of the condemned were innocents, notably Sir Thomas More, Lady Margaret Pole, and Anne Boleyn, and some paid the ultimate price for perceived failure despite years of service, notably Thomas Wolsey and Thomas Cromwell, many others were undeniably guilty of treason, such as the 287 people who participated in rebellion. Much changed in England and Wales as a result of Henry VIII's rule. The realm now lay outside the administrative and spiritual jurisdiction of Rome. Monasteries no longer existed. Their libraries dispersed and most of their buildings demolished. Shrines attracting pilgrimages were no more. Wales was integrated into the administrative system of England. Ireland was now styled a kingdom and governed more directly from London. Henry VIII, for better or worse, left an indelible mark on British history. Again, we can all look at history through a slightly different lens. I think it's a bit of tit-for-tat to say, well, he only killed hundreds of people, not thousands. Personally, I kind of think that the atrocity of him making up fake charges of adultery so he could chop off the head of his innocent wife is enough to make me not like the dude. But maybe I'm just being a little too harsh. Certainly, there are a variety of opinions about the nearly 40 years that Henry ruled and what the overall outcome was for the people of England. But one thing we can all agree on is that after his death, it all became a bit of a shit show, and nothing went as planned. Which brings us to the topic of his children and that silly line of succession that he couldn't ever, ever seem to be happy with. As a refresher, Henry is survived by three living children from his first three marriages. The Lady Mary is the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, and she's now 31 years old when her father dies. 
the Lady Elizabeth, is the daughter of Anne Boleyn. She's now 14 and has spent a significant portion of her life being labeled the bastard daughter of an evil heretic of a mother. She's not the most popular teenager in England. And of course, there is the beloved son, Prince Edward, who is all of nine years old when Henry dies, and he assumes the throne. His mother was Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour. So as expected, Edward is named the King of England, but due to his young age, there was a council selected by Henry in his will to help support the boy until he comes of age. Chief among them is Edward Seymour, who had essentially been the Lord Protector of his nephew since his sister's untimely death. The new king is very fond of his uncle, which makes it easy for Seymour to steer the royal decision-making in his favor. King Edward is a Protestant and continues to endorse the nation's slow march toward becoming the Church of England. Everything seems to be going fine until, well, Edward dies, at the age of 15, having spent six years on the throne. He never married. He never fathered children. Now, what he did do when he knew he was sick and wouldn't live much longer was passed another act of succession, which removed his two half-sisters from the line of succession again. These poor girls, it's like you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. It's enough to make you crazy. What this particular version accomplished was to move up in the line the heirs of Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's younger sister. Let's go back a bit. Mary Tudor, after humping the old French king to death, married Charles Brandon, her absolute true love, and the king's lifelong best friend. They have a daughter named Frances Brandon, so she would be Henry VIII's niece. She marries Henry Grey, and they have a daughter named Jane Grey. So Lady Jane Grey may not seem like the most obvious choice, especially when King Edward had two sisters, but he decided to bypass them and moved his first cousin once removed to be the next in line. He was very concerned that his sister Mary was a Catholic, and if given the throne, she would absolutely kiss and make up with the Pope and require the people of England to revert back to the Roman Catholic Church. Elizabeth is a bit of a mystery. She was a Protestant, and she and Edward were seemingly close as kids. I don't know why he decided to 86 her, unless her being the daughter of Anne Boleyn was still too undesirable. So Jane Grey becomes the Queen of England in July of 1553. I wish I could say that Jane spent many years on the throne, becoming one of England's most revered rulers. But she lasted all of nine days. Remember when I said earlier that this would become a shit show? Yeah, this is what I was talking about. Before there was even a coronation for Jane, support for Mary had suddenly reached a fever pitch. There were still, of course, many loyal Catholics in England who wanted to see her on the throne. But also there were people who weren't necessarily thinking of it from a religious standpoint, but supported her because A, she was the only child of the still-beloved Queen Catherine of Aragon, and they never really could come to terms how badly Henry treated her mother, but B, it's frankly the right thing to do. She's the eldest daughter of Henry VIII, and damn it, she's next in line, period. There's a lot of drama surrounding Mary removing Jane from the throne and Jane and her husband both eventually being executed for treason. 
but I'll wait to cover that if I decide to do a second season of this podcast. And considering all of these loose ends, it's going to be very likely. Mary I became Queen of England in July of 1553. And to put it mildly, this was a turbulent time in England. As predicted, Mary very aggressively and with great brutality attempted to reverse the English Reformation, which at this point had been almost 20 years in the making. Her nickname was Bloody Mary, and she was known for burning almost 300 Protestants at the stake. And as many as 800 of the wealthiest Protestants fled into exile rather than face her wrath. She tried to return or reimburse the property and wealth which was confiscated from the church during her father and brother's reigns. But that was a bridge too far for Parliament. They're like, you know, we stayed quiet when you were burning people alive in the streets, but taxing the rich to make reparations? Yeah, that's going to be a hard no. Mary, like her father before her, was extremely concerned about the line of succession. Unless Mary were to have children of her own, her sister Elizabeth is next in line. And she's a Protestant. Mary is 37 years old, which is typically well beyond childbearing age at this time in history. But she knows she must do everything she can to keep Elizabeth from succeeding her. Her cousin Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, Remember Catherine's nephew who Mary was once betrothed to as a child? He suggested that the queen marry his son, Prince Philip of Spain. Many hoped she would marry an Englishman, as it didn't seem very patriotic to have their queen beholden to a foreigner. Another sticking point was that under English law, all property and titles belonging to the woman became her husband's upon marriage. Yeah, that sounds super fair. But legally, Philip of Spain would become the King of England. It was decided that they would co-rule, but the damage was already done. Mary had become incredibly unpopular with the English people. There were riots and attempted insurrections to depose Mary, none of which were successful. But the continued uprisings do increase her paranoia, and believing her sister Elizabeth may have had something to do with the attempts to overthrow her, Elizabeth was thrown into the tower. A couple of months later, she is released and put under house arrest at Woodstock Palace. In September 1554, Mary stopped menstruating, and she began to gain weight and was often nauseated. It didn't take long for word to spread that Mary was pregnant. Parliament passed an act to make her husband Philip the regent in the event she was to die in childbirth, as was very common. At the end of April 1555, her sister Elizabeth was released from house arrest and summoned to court to witness the birth, which everyone believed was imminent, of course, because we can do the math. We know the baby's coming. There had been rumors spread across Europe that she had given birth to a baby boy, but in truth, no baby ever came. All of May and June went by as everyone waited, wondering what the hell was happening. It wasn't until July when the signs, or symptoms if you will, of pregnancy finally ended and her abdomen receded. It is believed that her deep longing for a child caused what was referred to as a false pregnancy. Not only did Mary have to suffer terrible disappointment, but she was also widely ridiculed for all the drama. By May 1558, Mary had fallen ill 
It is believed that she suffered from ovarian cysts or uterine cancer, and she was in terrible pain up until her death in November of that year. It's reported that she and her sister Elizabeth mended their relationship before she died. And although they were different religions, it seems Mary had accepted that her sister would succeed her. Henry's heirs are dropping like flies and not leaving any children behind when they go. So Elizabeth is now last man standing. The young woman they called the bastard child of a heretic whore is now the boss-ass bitch at the age of 25. One of her first acts was to go ahead and solidify those outstanding religious matters and establish an English Protestant church, which would later formally evolve into the Church of England. Even though she was a Protestant in heart and action, she also sought solutions that wouldn't greatly offend Catholics. Although there were still heresy laws on the books, it's fair to say that Elizabeth eventually adopted a live-and-let-live attitude when it came to religious matters. Enough blood had been spilled. The only real barrier to a smooth early reign for Elizabeth was her pesky Scottish cousin, Mary Queen of Scots. I'll give you a little bit of history on her, but buckle up because this gets a little confusing. Henry VIII, in addition to his younger sister Mary Tudor, also had an older sister named Margaret. She was the oldest of the four Tudor children. We don't really talk much about her because he was still very young when Margaret was sent to Scotland to marry James IV. So James is Henry's brother-in-law. If you remember during Henry's first marriage to Catherine of Aragon, the Scots invaded England while Henry was off fighting with the French. Catherine helped gather an army, and they not only beat back the Scottish army, but killed King James in battle. James's son, also named James, is just a baby when his father dies, but he becomes King James V, and with help from his mother and a reliable council, he rules Scotland for many years. In 1538, when he's 25 years old, he marries a French woman named Mary of Guise. If you remember that name, it's because Henry VIII wanted her for his fourth wife. Remember how he had advisors out scouting Europe for a beautiful bride? Mary of Guise was one of the top choices, but she's no dummy. She wanted nothing to fucking do with him, and she hightailed it out of there and quickly married King James V, who was Henry's nephew. The two of them had a daughter. She was named Mary. This is the infamous Mary Stuart. Her father will die when she is just six days old, and she becomes known as Mary, Queen of Scots. For her safety, Mary Stuart was sent to France when she was five years old. In her absence, her country was ruled by counselors and her mother. She eventually married the French King Francis II and remained in France until he died in 1560. It was unique that she was both the ruling Queen of Scotland and the Queen Consort of France at the same time. Mary was Henry VIII's great-niece, so many people believed she was every bit as entitled to his throne as the Lady Jane Grey had been. Both are the grandchildren of Henry's sisters. And at one point, Mary even claimed Elizabeth's throne, stating she was the more legitimate of the two. The fact that he intentionally didn't name Margaret's heirs to his line of succession was just a tiny little insignificant detail, especially for the Catholics in England who wanted her on the throne in place of Elizabeth. Mary returned to Scotland in 1561, 
she gets married to her half-cousin, Henry Stewart, who was murdered less than two years later. They had one son together. This is James VI. There's a lot of political drama between Mary and Elizabeth, which ends up getting Mary arrested and held prisoner in England for 19 years. Eventually, Mary is found guilty in a plot to assassinate Elizabeth, and she is beheaded in 1586. Elizabeth I ends up ruling England for 45 years until her death in 1603 at the age of 70. She never married or had any children. She was also known as the Virgin Queen and ended up having quite an impressive reign, leading England through the Golden Age. She had open trade agreements with many foreign countries, including the Netherlands, Russia, and even the Barbary states, which today would more commonly be known as North Africa, Algiers, and Morocco. She sent explorers, including Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh, out to discover new lands. The territory of Virginia was established and named for the Virgin Queen. During the later years of her reign, there was an unsurpassed literary movement when some of the greatest names in English literature entered their maturity, including William Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe. Elizabeth had never formally named a successor until 1598, when there were negotiations made with James VI of Scotland. He is the surviving son of her cousin Mary, Queen of Scots, and pretty much the only relative left to choose from. Elizabeth died in 1603, she was the last of the five monarchs of the House of Tudor. Although Henry never would have predicted it, the daughter of Anne Boleyn, the girl he essentially cast out and ignored for most of her childhood, grew up to be his greatest success story. Elizabeth ruled for 45 years, just a few years shy of the total combined reigns of her father, brother, and sister. The Tudor name survived long after Henry and his six wives. If you're willing to come back for more, we can learn about his children in greater detail in Season 2 of The Surreal Housewives of Hampton Court. Thank you so much to those of you who've become loyal listeners. I hope you'll join me on my next podcasting journey. Thank you for listening. This concludes The Surreal Housewives of Hampton Court. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, please like, follow, or post a review. That helps the Surreal Housewives of Hampton Court reach a wider audience. Music for the Surreal Housewives is provided by Kevin McLeod. This classic sampler is called Running Fanfare, and I admit it's just perfect. I got it off of freemusicarchive.org. If you visit their site, they do take donations, so please be generous. The updated cover art was created by my ridiculously talented nephew, Ryan Siders. If you'd like to see a little bit more of his brilliant work, check out Ambient Gloom on Instagram. Thank you for listening, and we hope you come back for season two.